Listener supported. WNYC Studios. How do you define dirty politics? Is it like porn? Where Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart once said, I know it when I see it? Or is it harder than that? Something that looks like politics as usual to me may look way out of bounds to you. A personal attack, obviously, um, and also a failure to understand other people's needs. When people use tax money for, like, paying for their girlfriend's abortion and they're against abortion, you know, and, and that sort of thing. What do I think makes politics dirty? Probably people not caring for each other and saying mean sh- Corruption. Deceit. Currently the president. Politicians. White people. Politically motivated decisions that then benefit a private company so they get money and it's not for the good of the people. People who are trying to lead from a place of ego rather than trying to lead for some collective good. I smell politics. I smell politics going on. Since the midterm elections, we've seen a number of examples of hardball tactics. In Wisconsin, Republicans stripped power from the newly elected governor, Democrat Tony Evers. Republicans in Michigan tried a similar maneuver, but the bills were vetoed by the outgoing governor, who also happens to be a Republican. This wasn't the first time a Republican legislature tried to curtail the influence of an incoming Democratic governor. After the 2016 election, the GOP-controlled North Carolina legislature passed laws in a lame-duck session that undercut the powers and even the number of staff to the incoming Democratic governor, Roy Cooper. But it's not just Republicans who are using aggressive political tactics. Democrats in New Jersey last year proposed a constitutional amendment for redistricting that would essentially solidify their party's control of the state legislature for the next decade. The idea prompted a whole lot of backlash, notably from folks within their own party like the state's Democratic governor, Phil Murphy. I want to win elections fair and square. I don't want to have anything to do with rigging elections and and skewing one party uh, against the other. And according to a recent report from The New York Times, a group of Democratic tech experts used deceptive social media tactics, similar to the ones the Russians used in the 2016 presidential election, to influence a special Senate race in Alabama on behalf of now Senator Doug Jones. So is all this wheeling and dealing just politics as usual, or has something fundamentally changed? I think there are more and less intense periods of hardball. I think we've been in a pretty intense period since the 1970s, and in particular, we've seen an escalation of Republican hardball. I kind of think we're over a cliff, and what is there to wheel us back? I'm Amy Walter, and today on The Takeaway, a game of political hardball. When playing any game, to stand a chance of winning, you have to understand what it is you're playing. So what exactly is political hardball? Political behaviors that don't necessarily violate the law, but that nonetheless break the perceived rules of normal constitutional politics. That's David Posen. He's a professor at Columbia Law School. You can think of him as our referee here. According to Posen, while both parties play the game, it's the Republicans who play it with more intensity. I think they all do it to an extent, but I don't think it follows from the fact that both sides sometimes play hardball, sometimes it takes two to play hardball, that they do it equally, with equal frequency or or intensity. Um, It's a hard thing to prove that asymmetry can't easily quantify it. Hardball itself can take many forms, Mm -hmm. but there are good historical reasons, I think, just 
reading the historical record to identify types of Republican hardball you don't see on the Democratic side, from threatening to default on the national debt to trying to suppress uh, turnout of the other side in federal elections, appointing agency heads who don't believe in the agency they've been asked to lead. So certain types of hardball just don't have an analog on the Democratic side, but others do. But I think more broadly, there's just a lot of, you could call it indirect evidence, that the parties have evolved in very different ways over the past three or four decades that make it more likely that the Republicans would be interested in constitutional hardball. And so can you walk us through that? Okay, so some of the reasons are ideological and some are institutional. Ideologically, there's a a lot of evidence of what political scientists call asymmetric polarization. Both parties have moved to their respective ideological sides of the spectrum since the 70s, but Republicans have moved further to the right. The Democrats have moved to the left. They've also developed a kind of narrative of constitutional and cultural corruption uh, by liberals that that may require bold moves to uh, to respond. They're less likely to place great value on government itself and on good governance um, in a way that may make them more willing to do hardball behaviors that hobble the government, like government shutdowns. And I think there's also a kind of existential worry about the Republican Party becoming a permanent minority party as the demographics of the country change. So all those ideological factors, I think, conduce to more hardball aptitude. On the right, institutionally, I'll just say quickly, um, Republicans have been much more vulnerable to primary challenges from relatively ideologically extreme members of their own party since the mid-1990s than Democrats. And um, they've also developed in that same period more openly and aggressively partisan media outlets. Think of Fox News, the Rush Limbaugh Show, and uh, think tanks, think Heritage or Cato, and then funding mechanisms and institutions, including the, the Koch Brothers Network. So for a variety of overlapping reasons, you can't pluck out one reason and isolate its causal role, but a bunch of overlapping factors, I think, support this asymmetry thesis. That's interesting. And I wonder if the era of Trump, though, is going to reshuffle the asymmetry. We've already seen, excuse me, I was looking at a Pew survey the other day, looking at the percentage of Democrats who identify themselves as liberal now for the first time is over 50 percent. That's a big spike since where we were in the 90s when about 38 percent of Democrats called themselves liberal. We saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez running to the left, mm. at least philosoph- if not ideologically, philosophically, from yeah. uh, the Democratic incumbent, Joe Crowley. Are you expecting to see this asymmetry maybe become m- more balanced? I, I think there may be some convergence, uh, but overall, I would I would expect for the foreseeable future, there's still to be more Republican hardball overall, at least mm-hmm. in certain domains. And even though, as you say, the, the rhetoric... Uh, And to some extent, the political center of the Democratic Party is shifting in ways that do seem like Harbaugh is going to become a more prominent part of the Democratic discourse. On some issues, the Democrats' political normative commitments incapacitate Harbaugh. So on shutdowns, on defaulting on the debt ceiling, again, suppressing voters, these are things that the, the party that wants to be the party that cares about a government that works is going to have a hard time doing. So I, I still think there are some constraints on the Democratic side that uh, aren't fully there on the Republican side. There are some Democrats now who would argue, why should we care about the optics? Republicans don't seem to care about optics. They win. We're not. And so I'm wondering if there are other ways in which Democrats are able to exert their power that may not be as obvious 
as what we're seeing in Wisconsin or North Carolina? It's a hard question, and it may depend a lot on context, but I've written a little bit about what I call anti-hardball responses or approaches going forward. And if hardball are these norm-breaking tactics that invite tit-for-tat escalation and and for that reason can be scary, anti-hardball policies are good government policies that would reduce the amount of hardball that could be played by either side in future periods. So on this issue of legislative redistricting, taking the power to redistrict away from the incumbent legislators and putting it in the hands of an independent commission makes a ton of sense. It's used by most of the rest of the world. It would be anti-hardball in the sense that uh, neither side could game the system as easily in in the future. So I think where possible, it's not going to be true in every area, Democrats should try to seek openings where they they can get to anti-hardball. The the paradox, however, is to get there, you may actually need to play some hardball in some cases um, or else uh, Republicans won't come to the table. There's the rub, right, which is using whatever means necessary to get to the better goal, right? If if you fundamentally believe that this issue, whatever it is, is so critical, maybe maneuvering in ways that are not normative are are easily excused. Uh, it depends. Again, I think on context, you know, there, there are there are kind of abstract questions of political morality here, but also very context sensitive, practical questions of political judgment. Where, where can you win uh, uh, and where can you get to anti-hardball that will last? I will say that I think um, Democrats are on the strongest ground when the policies they're pushing for, at least in theory, have broad bipartisan appeal, um, sensible districting that doesn't overly advantage one side, voting generally, policies that would increase turnout uh, uh, and meaningfully you know, enfranchise parts of the population that, that don't uh, tend to vote these days. I, I think there's an excellent small-D Democratic case for voting reforms uh, on a number of dimensions. Um, that also happened at this moment in time to have a big D Democratic appeal as well, So, since a lot of these policies might tend to help Democrats going forward. But but where Democrats can tether whatever hardball they might play to a plausible good faith account of how any reasonable observer under a veil of ignorance, not knowing which party was doing it, would support the move, that seems like an attractive place to play hardball. Is this polarization and the the ways in which we're seeing this hardball play out, is this just where we are doomed to stay? There's no sort of magic, wonderful place where everybody agrees that, look, we know what the rules are. I'm going to abide by them. I trust that you're going to abide by them. Are we naive to think it could ever look like this? I don't think hardball is ever going to go away. I'm not sure it ever should go away. At any given point in time, there are going to be political actors who want to disrupt the status quo uh, and may take aggressive action to do so. That's healthy to an extent in a democracy. Right. I do think it's plausible, however, that the overall levels of hardball we now have are pathological. I mean, I could reel off example after example after example. They'll, they'll be familiar from refusing to give Judge Garland a hearing for his Supreme Court nomination at the state level, what we just discussed in Michigan, Wisconsin. Also, in the early 2000s, efforts by Republican legislators in Colorado, Georgia, and Texas to do redistricting mid-decade, notwithstanding a norm, it's only done at the end of each decade, increasing threats to shut down the government, to default on, on the debt, increasing tactics of voter suppression. Add this all up, and I, I think we are at a fairly dysfunctional place. And overall, good government reformers should be seeking to, to reduce levels of hardball, but not to romanticize some peaceful equilibrium that never was. David Posen, thank you so much for coming in and joining us. Thanks for having me. David Posen is a professor of law at Columbia Law School. 
are Democrats just not as good at, or maybe not as willing, to play the game of political hardball? Democrats are just an inherently bigger tent party because they believe in more government, but people have lots of different ways that they want more government, and so you have lots more disagreement, you have lots more factions fighting against each other, and that means you have a less unified message. That's Claire Malone. She's senior political writer at 538. And she tells me that the very makeup of the two parties may lead to this asymmetrical constitutional hardball we just heard about. Democrats, they started machine politics, right? So Tammany Hall, that is a democratic innovation, machine, <laughs> machine politics. But the interesting thing about the Democratic and Republican parties of recent years is that the Republicans are generally better at having one cohesive message, having talking points, having a single goal or a more unified goal, and then kind of going after it with certain strategies that are looked on unfavorably. You know, there's a couple of reasons for that. For one, it, it starts with just the basic views of the political parties. So Republicans want less government. That's a pretty simple goal at the end of the day. You can have more straightforward paths to your end goal of less government. Because the Republican Party has gotten a lot of blowback for, say, voter suppression laws or these kinds of machinations that take place, you know, in the back room behind the scenes. It's become a thing where voters of color or more liberal Democrats just don't react well to those tactics from within their party. And Democrats, unlike Republicans, need black voters as part of their coalition. Republicans, the party is whiter and older. Their demographics are much more homogenous. And they can kind of not have those blowbacks. So I think those tactics that the New Jersey Democrats were toying with really turned a lot of people off because they said, no, that's what the other party uses. And the other party uses them in these racialized ways. And that's not a cool path to go down. Let's talk about one place where Democrats, it looks like, did play dirty. Lisa, reporting that we're seeing out of the Alabama Senate race, mm. that this front group was set up to mimic Russian bots or setting up web pages that were discouraging Republican voters. In other words, doing some of the things that Democrats decried the Russians doing in the 2016 campaign. I wonder how you think that is playing out. I mean, that that situation is so interesting. Senator Doug Jones, who is the first Democrat to win an Alabama Senate seat in quite some time, did it on the strength of black voters. And, and obviously Alabama has a tangled, terrible history with black voting rights. And Jones came out pretty strongly against those tactics. That aside, if we look at these sort of rising internet strategies of targeting certain voter groups and trying to depress their turnouts, I think it's unavoidable to say that like this is this will happen. Just thinking about that question from the very beginning about you know, who's better at playing mm -hmm. hardball. Um, also thinking about it legislatively, mm -hmm. right? Mitch McConnell and the Merrick Garland yeah. decision, for example. Do you think that's something that uh, Democrats are going to be asked to do as well? And that they say, well, wait a minute. We can't be the ones holding back when Republicans do these sorts of things. Yeah, the realm of the possible, I think, mm -hmm. has been has been opened quite a bit. The Supreme Court in particular is an area that Democrats are angry over because of the Merrick Garland nomination holdup. And so you see ideas that were once kind of relegated to the historical fringe, like court packing, increasing the number of justices on the court, imposing term limits on Supreme Court justices so that one president might have no 
justices appointed, but another might have three. You're seeing people start to float these ideas on the Democratic side saying, listen, this system isn't working for us. Republicans have been much better about cultivating conservative judges, making sure that Republican presidents see the kind of conservative judges that they want. We need to fight back. We need to pack the court. We need more justices. That's an idea that has really caught fire in the past, I would say, six months in pretty mainstream liberal circles. Now, you do see people on the left really split about it because they say, well, Americans have, whether right or wrong, an idea that the court isn't a politicized thing. And this goes back to the delegitimization of institutions of our democracy. Would there be a chance that if Democrats pack the court, it gets more political and someday down the road, a governor of a state decides to ignore the decision of a Supreme Court because they say, well, that's a Republican judge's decision or that's a Democratic judge's decision and I don't buy that. That's a crisis. That's a constitutional crisis. So I think people are playing it down the road and saying, yikes, this is crazy. But there are ideas floating out there on the left that are about systemic change. The other idea you see is giving statehood to Puerto Rico and D.C., increasing the number of members of Congress, with the theory being those seats will be Democratic seats. So I think that the appetite of Democrats to fight back has been whetted by the Trump era. And frankly, the the first two years of the Trump era where they didn't have any control in Washington at all. And now you're seeing divided government and a little bit more of the, the kind of angry id of the Democrats coming out. Do you sense that there's going to be a bounce back? Or have we now stretched the bounds so far that there's no way we're ever going to go back to what the rules used to be pre-Trump? Legislatively, perhaps we're over the edge and that there will be kind of these hostage-taking tactics. I mean, shutdowns have become so common over the past few years, holding up judicial nominations. That stuff, I think, is perhaps going to continue. The one place where I think you could see a snap back to norms is perhaps when Trump is out of office, some of the unwritten norms that we have for the president will be written. So there might be, you might see some greater legal constraints on the power of the executive. I'm thinking about like pardon power, perhaps there are greater restrictions on things like that, because I think it has opened people's eyes to what can be done with the power of the executive and how much we left to norms prior to the Trump presidency. But legislatively, I, I kind of think we're over a cliff. And what is there to wheel us back? Claire Malone, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right. So at this point, we've heard from two smart people. And more or less, they're both saying it's the Republicans who are best at playing political hardball. 
Not only do they win more, they play more frequently. But how does a Republican who actually worked in politics feel about that? I asked my friend Doug High. Do you think Republicans are better at playing hardball than Democrats? (laughs) No, is the short answer. He's obviously biased, but Doug is speaking from experience on this. He served as deputy chief of staff for communications for House Majority Leader Eric Cantor and in the George W. Bush administration. Democrats think you are. Well, I think each side equally thinks that their side is not doing as good a job as the other team is, right? And I I think that's kind of been true for for a long time. Republicans don't see themselves as being better at hardball, that Democrats are just – are playing just as hard as they are. Do you have examples personally of seeing how that played out and whether that was in a campaign or whether that was in, in the legislative process? I just remember in so many conference meetings and then other meetings with members that they always felt that they were being outfoxed by Obama and the Democrats. And in part because we weren't, again, to use the word, we weren't fighting enough. You know, that what's what's happened in Wisconsin and and North Carolina, as you know, I'm from there. That may be examples where that kind of sentiment among Republicans aren't true. I'm not a, a fan of what happened in Wisconsin or North Carolina, unless the principled argument is for a weaker executive, although in North Carolina, it's a traditionally weak executive anyways. But there's always been that, you know, that sense. At the same time, you know, Democrats are not shy at playing very hardball tactics that has anything to do with race or gender that we're seeing right now. If you say that Elizabeth Warren is unlikable, you're seen as a sexist. doesn't matter if you think Amy Klobuchar is likable or Nancy Pelosi is, is likable or, you know, what have you, you're seen as a sexist. Similarly, Um, And this is obviously helped by some Republicans who say really stupid things about women and minorities. Um, But similarly, if you're critical of a minority, the the racist card comes out pretty quickly. And those Democrats who play that racist card on you, you know, didn't want Mia Love reelected, but they play that card very effectively. The media always gives that attention. And that is a hardball tactic that, yes, especially in the age of Trump, but even before that, Democrats don't need a lot of help to play that, but they but they get it. But that is done extremely effective on Republicans. But let's look at North Carolina for a second, where the argument could be that Republicans actually, by the way that they gerrymandered these districts and, and admitted that they needed to um, keep African-American voters in one district or make sure that they were not as well represented among many districts because they were going to vote for Democrats. It was a system, a gerrymandering system, and a voting rules system about what identification you need to vote that was based on race. Isn't it hard for Republicans to argue that Democrats play the race card too much? With full disclosure, as you know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of a lot of how these things have been implemented. I'm totally fine with voter ID. But if you do voter ID, well, then you can't make it harder for people to get them. We know what that's about. Redistricting and gerrymandering has, has benefited African-Americans. And, the, and that certainly Democrats have been aware of that over time. Um, the, the 1990 lines were challenged for years because of that. And, and I understand that there's, you know, for want of a better term, hanky-panky that gets, gets played on, on both sides of this. I don't like when Republicans do that or the other side does it for that matter. But we do need to be mindful that some of this ensures minority representation that might not be there otherwise. So should Democrats play dirtier? 
I asked a Democrat that question. We should not be winning at all costs. I don't think that's the right way to do things. We should really win on messaging and turning out our voters. This is Corinne Jean-Pierre. She's a senior advisor at Move On, the progressive advocacy group. And she says not only should Democrats not play dirtier, but actually thinking about politics as a game to begin with is the bigger problem. The truth is, to most of the people across the country, it's not a game. It has real-world impacts on them, uh, their families, their children, and their community. Look no further than the more than 800,000 people who are probably not going to get a paycheck. And that's because Donald Trump and the Republicans have decided to shut down the government. And so beyond the government workers, people who can't afford health care or housing, they want government that's that works for them, right? That that truly, truly helps them. And so, and that's what we saw in November 6, right? When November 6, the midterms election happened, that's what I, majority of Americans were saying when when folks crossed over, right, suburban women and Republicans crossed over to vote for Democrats in those districts that Donald Trump won, uh, that that was the message that they were saying. They were saying enough. But you see this over and over again in these different kind of pockets across the country where, yeah, Republicans are playing hardball, but that's not what the, the country wants. I don't think that's what voters want. And I think that they made that clear on November 6th. Just thinking about what we've seen, especially this last year in places like Wisconsin or North Carolina, or what we saw after the 2010 elections where Republicans got control of a lot of legislatures and governorships, and they used that power to help cement their power, whether it was through gerrymandering or passing legislation that helped to benefit them politically do you think that Democrats need to think more like that? Voters don't want that. They're tired of the stinkiness of it, if you will, of politics. They want they want fairness. And so I think by some doing something like gerrymandering in a way that is as crazy as an, and intense as what Republicans are doing, where the district looks like some weird snake, like that's not the way to do it. What we want and what should be done is fairness. You wrote an opinion column in USA Today, and you make the case that whoever Democrats nominate, he or she must offer a clear, unapologetic, progressive alternative to Donald Trump. They've made it abundantly clear that the, they meaning Democratic voters, they've made it abundantly clear that the last thing they want to see in their nominee is a middle-of-the-road Democrat who won't go far enough to turn our country around. Is what you're arguing that Democrats need to play politics in the same way Donald Trump is. He's unapologetic. He doesn't play by the same rules and norms. What I'm saying is these, you know, dozens or so candidates that are going to be announcing any moment now, <laughs> I, I want to say to them, especially the, the progressive ones that we know of right now, is that don't be shy about it. Be bold. You know, talk about Medicare for all. Talk about how you want to protect Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Talk about affordable housing. You know, talk about the economy and how it's going to be for working people and middle class people. And not to shy away from that. Just thinking about how much this president uses his Twitter feed and his behavior as his message, right? That's part of the message. I'm going to shake things up because I'm not following the same rules as everybody else does. Is that something that Democrats should prize? Or is it that Voters are looking for the opposite of that. We don't want to have somebody who does these things, and that is going to be a more attractive candidate. 
we have to remember there is a a large portion of the electorate that didn't come out. They didn't come out and vote. They stayed home. They weren't inspired. Or they, whatever reason that they had, they decided to stay home. And so, yes, Hillary Clinton won by 3 million votes, but a lot of people stayed home. So I think there is space for a candidate to come in and, in 2020 and, and bring in those new voters. And our nominee needs to be able to bring in young people, make sure that uh, the base comes out, make sure that you excite independents to come out for you. There's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done because a lot of folks stayed home. You know, it's not that Donald Trump had an amazing formula. Our our side didn't come out. And so we need to inspire. Karine Jean-Pierre, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Amy. Okay, we've spent a lot of time looking at the norm breaking and the win at all costs mentality in our political era. So how do we fix this mess? I talked to someone with a counterintuitive idea. My name is Jonathan Rausch. I'm a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Jonathan argues that the best way to reform the system is to empower the political class instead of trying to find new ways to undercut them. The term political class has become a term of abuse in America. The problem, however, is not that the political class today is too strong, but that it's too weak. Politics is really hard. You've got to take 300 million Americans who don't agree on anything, thousands if not millions of interest groups, multiple conflicting and competing ideologies, and somehow translate that into passing bills to keep the government open and electing people who are responsible and responsive. And that is all super hard. And you can't do that without middlemen and middlewomen, intermediaries who do the hard job of organizing politics. Every day they get up and figure out how do we put the coalitions together? How do we recruit smart, sensible, sane people to run? How do we get them to follow each other instead of behave like cats on a flatbed truck? So you need those people and they need tools to do it. They need stuff like pork barrel spending. They need campaign money that they can use. They need to have some control over the nominating process. They need to be able to go behind closed doors and work. They need lots of stuff. And we've reformed a lot of those tools away. We decided politics is going to be better if it's directly from the people and the candidates and no one in between and you get chaos as a result. Now, what you also get, of course, are the opinions of people who were locked out of the system for much of its history, right? Women, people of color, et cetera. So isn't that part of the trade-off that instead of having a bunch of white dudes deciding who is or is not in power, we have a messier process, but one that at least includes more people? So that's a very standard critique. You know, the old political machines excluded people, and if you want to bring people in, you've, you've got to demolish the sort of standard political order. I think it's a red herring. I actually think it's wrong. The evidence from political science shows that political machines like Tammany Hall were really good at bringing new people into politics. They would go to immigrants virtually on the dock and say, hey, don't you want to be a Democrat? Don't you want to come and do this and that? They were always scouting for new groups. They were good, actually, at bringing them in. Now, of course, the power structure in America excluded women and whites and gays like me 
for many generations. But that wasn't the fault of the intermediaries. That was the fault of the power structure, right? The intermediaries were also the victims of that. So actually, I think what we've done with the current system is in many ways made it easier for factional minorities like special interests to get control of the nominating process. But I think we can have an open system that's also capable of solving problems for people. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. So how would that work in a system where we know that the power structure is still, whether we're looking at corporate America or political America, it is more diverse, but obviously still run by white Americans, mostly male. How does that not just revert back to form? Well, ask Nancy Pelosi, the leader of the Democratic House. In some ways, until there's a candidate, the leader of the Democratic Party is, is female and a very, very good old-fashioned politician. Certainly on the Democratic side, you're seeing massive generational change and massive demographic change. And that's a good thing. But those people also need tools. Nancy Pelosi's got a really tough job holding that caucus together and moving ahead productively in a very difficult environment. So she needs tools. So the point you're making isn't really that relevant. Whoever's in office, regardless of whether it's inclusive or not as inclusive, those people need tools to do their jobs. Would it be enough, as some members of Congress say privately, but would never say publicly, to just bring back earmarks? Would doing something like that be enough to bring some order to what looks like a completely disorderly Congress? Earmarks would be helpful. They would be one tool, but let's not kid ourselves. They would be, you know, an incremental step in a positive direction, but a small step. The more important way that allowing earmarking to resume might be significant is it's a way to start telling the story to the public. Hey, wait a minute, guys. Congress doing its job, deciding how to spend money, using earmarks in order as a kind of lubricant or glue to form coalitions. You know, if you vote for this bill, that second runway for the airport in your district, maybe you'll get it. Telling people the story that says that is not illegitimate, that is not corrupt, that's politics working, that's politics doing its job as the Constitution envisioned it. I think earmarks correctly framed can be one way to start telling people that story. One thing you talk about in your piece is the incentive problem in Washington, but I would argue it's more of a social problem as well. And part of the reason that our institutions writ large are struggling is that what is rewarded in our culture is individualism and the ability to rise above and stand out versus a willingness to be part of a bigger whole and to be part of a team. One of the things that's made Congress less effective and leadership less effective in Congress has been that more and more of these people are going there not to do the hard work of legislating, forming coalitions, making compromise, and cranking through the process that used to be called regular order. More and more of them are going there to get famous so that they can raise more money and be on talk shows. So 
that makes it that kind of individualistic model that each member of Congress is in business for herself or himself makes it a lot harder to organize. And, you know, that's to some extent something we're just going to have to live with because it's the age we live in. But that said, Amy, when I've talked to members of Congress or read what they say in the papers, something that really comes through, if, the, if, if anyone is tired of this sort of runaway individualism in our governing institutions, it's these folks, because they know better than any of us that they're not really functioning really very well as a legislative body anymore. We end this hour by asking whether all the talk of fixing the system is actually much less complicated. Instead of focusing our energy on the bad actors or the blame game or the dysfunctional incentive structures, what if our energy were directed at the simplest and most basic building block of all, ensuring that every voter who wants to participate in the process has the ability to do so? I just wish for our country that we would get back to the basics. We have a representative democracy, and the vote, according to the great civil rights historian Taylor Branch, is a little piece of nonviolence. That's how we resolve our political differences. That's Mirna Perez. She's deputy director of the Brennan Center's Democracy Project. She's noted several ways in which our system is being undermined by those in power. We're seeing increasingly some politicians seemingly profiting from just tearing the whole system down, from from letting everything be tarnished. I mean, I, I, let's take some of these recent voter suppression efforts. Um, when someone tries to suppress the vote, they may or may not be successful. There may be people like me and the ACLU and other organizations like us that go in and are successful in stopping it. But what have they done? They have cheapened the political system. They have disgusted some voters. They have turned some voters off because they have said this is a political football and politicians are all, uh, you know, engaging in shenanigans in order to try and protect themselves. And even if they are unsuccessful in their effort, they still cause some damage to the system that's really hard for to recover from because there are now people that don't have faith in the system. Right. They think it's the system's so rigged, why bother even voting? Because it's pretty clear that if it's not me, there's somebody else that they're going to disenfranchise or there's some other way that they're going to rig the system to, to or, keep— Or that politicians don't care about me anymore. They just care about themselves. So when I'm having to make a choice between, you know, taking time off of work, spending time with my family, figuring out if I can find a babysitter, you know, uh, resting after my multiple jobs, like— are people going to prioritize voting and everything that is required in order to do it? Um, it it's really hard to know. And so I, I think that is, unfortunately, and I don't have evidence of this, but I, I think that that's part of the calculus. I think some people think even if we are unsuccessful, we've created confusion We've disgusted some people. We've diverted resources from people who would be otherwise trying to register for people to vote or get out the vote. We've been tying them up in court activity. Um, and so they've, they've, they've moved the needle a little bit on their end. Um, you know, and, and part of that inspires me to not make it easy for people who want to do that. If people want to suppress the vote, I'm very proud to say that I represent voters. I don't represent candidates. Um, I don't represent political parties. What are some of the norms that you see breaking down? 
Um, I think, uh, and, and again, it, as soon as I start saying someone, there's always going to be one of your listeners that are going to come back. And we've had politicians trying to cheat on this level, this level, and this level. I will concede that's right. I'm not pretending that there was some mm-hmm. prior time where all politicians were pristine and there weren't dirty tricks. But I think the difference is when those folks were caught, they were embarrassed. <laughs> when those folks were caught, there were political consequences. When those folks were caught, people said, you know, that's not what we are saying is okay. Um, So I think, you know, truth in talking about your opponents, when you lose, you lose, you know, not trying to, after the fact, make it impossible for the person taking over for you to succeed. I think understanding that we have like certain rules of law, that we have certain procedural postures, um, that we have certain um, expectations that we're going to get a forthright and an honest um, answers from our government. I think those are things that I think are, are being called into into question. And I would hope that more and more politicians would run on the idea of making sure that our democratic systems are strong rather than uh, uh, I'm uh, trying to beat somebody else. Yeah. Or How do we get to a place with political figures to say, once these norms are broken, they're really hard to get them back. If losers don't accept losing and uh, winners use their power in a way that is overstretching traditional bounds, can we ever get back to a place where there is a norm? I mean, that's a philosophical question, that, I, and I don't have a crystal ball, but what I will say is we have to try. Unless we are going to be happy in a complete Wild West where nobody can trust anything that anybody says and nobody can count on um, you know, peaceful transitions and nobody can count on elections that um, have any sort of integrity, unless we're comfortable there, um, we need to fight for that. And we need to try and pass laws that make it easier for those uh, norms to take hold. And we need to remind people in our own circles about, um, you know, about the importance of uh, systems as much it is as who's in the office. And that, um, you know, get people to a place of where even if you don't like the outcome, even if your candidate lost, if you have confidence that it was fair and that everybody eligible was able to participate and you just weren't where the rest of the population is, you know, it's your job to try and persuade other people. Right. And to say, you know what, to to your supporters and others to say, you know what, we came up short this time, but that means next time we're going to work harder, we're going to win next time, right? And believing in the, that the system is fair enough that if you came back a second time right. or a third time, you might be able to win because it's not rigged against you. You just failed to cross the finish line first. Well, and also understanding vote. that there is a lot of back and forth in terms of what progress means. You know, progress is long. It has setbacks. None of us are in. Um, it's not linear. We like to think it is linear, right. but it's not linear. It doesn't follow a neat path. It doesn't exist in a playbook. It can't get tied up in two hours like a movie. It is something that is going to be contested and something that's going, it's something that we have to work for as a country. Like if we want to be the strongest democracy in the world, 
we're going to have to work for it. We're going to have to work for it every day. We're going to have to work for it in terms of what kind of laws we have. We're going to have to work for it in terms of like how we respond to changing demographics in our country. We're going to have to work for it in terms of making sure that people have um, – the basics of what they need in order to be able to think about what our democratic processes look like. This is not a an endeavor of, um, you know, that's going to happen just because. This is not one of these inevitable forces that is going to exist. If we're going to be a strong democracy, it's going to be because Americans decided that they were going to protect it and make it so. Mirna Perez, thank you so much for coming and joining us. Thank you for having me, Amy. Mirna Perez, Deputy Director of the Brennan Center's Democracy Program and leader of the Center's Voting Rights and Elections Project. Over the last few years, I've been thinking a lot about institutions and why and how they fail. And I grapple with the question of whether the dismantling and disruption of our political norms and structures is just a normal, healthy, but painful process of democracy. It's kind of like a forest fire being good because of the way it clears out dead brush and encourages new growth. Or maybe what's happening today is the beginning of a descent into a dark and dangerous place where the rules and the guardrails no longer can help us. In talking with the guests for the show and others who are thinking a lot about these things, I'm cautiously optimistic. The most dangerous threat to our political system is that people disengage from it, that it becomes so discredited that no one believes their voice or their vote matters. Well, the 2018 election showed us that voters aren't walking away. Turnout was higher than any previous midterm election in over 100 years. And as the Brennan Center's Mirna Perez noted, the path to progress isn't always linear. And in an era of Instagram, Instapots, and Insta News, it's hard to remain patient when we see things moving in the wrong direction. Most fundamentally, though, our system is built on faith. If we lose that, we lose everything. That's all for us today. Call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter and the show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Amy Walter and this is The Takeaway. It's The Takeaway Podcast. Putin would like to see the liberal world order fall apart. People of color have always understood that the American dream was a fantasy and an ideal. There is a crisis of institutional decay in our country. The risk of sea level rise is going to sink us before the seas ever do. Us as men, we have to start doing our work. May your rage be a force for good. For a daily podcast that breaks through the noise, subscribe to The Takeaway wherever you get your podcasts.